This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. Today, we have an episode of Not FinTech Investment Advice, and after a brief hiatus, We are delighted to be joined once again by the man, the myth, the legend, the father of two, Simon Taylor. Simon, how are you? I am so happy to be back, although Jared did an incredible job. I'm feeling like, ooh, you know, like somebody, he should be doing this more often, man. He was really, really good. So shout out to Jared. Well done, sir. My my hat is, uh, I I doff my cap to you. Uh Um, You're a, a, a gent and a scholar. No less. Saying things in a very British accent to make it sound official is is a whole thing. <laughs> but yeah, I'm well. I'm happy. Baby is well. Mom is well. Uh, I'm rested. I'm excited to get into the new year. I'm excited to get into all things fintech. And I'm excited to be back with you. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. I'm a little disturbed to hear how like well-rested and like cogent you are after having just welcomed a new baby into your house. So I won't try to pry all of your secrets for all of those things. He's holding up a Pepsi Max can in the screen for those who can't see. So, you know, rested in quotation marks. Caffeine can do a lot of work in place of actual Especially sleep. Especially if you have necessary. 12 cans a day. Especially yes. if you have 12 cans a day. Yeah. Yes. And we have talked about that before. So, Simon, we're going to kick off 2024 with four new companies that we want to talk about, as we typically do. Also, in typical fashion, disclosure, Simon and I are not investors. We think 2024 will be a fascinating year for fintech investment, something we were talking about before we hit record. But apart from the odd angel investment here or there, we don't do much in that world. So this is us just exploring our curiosity, right, Simon? Here, well said. Exactly right. This is not investment advice. That's the name of the show. So if you hadn't got that clue already, (laughs) you know, you just want to check your reading comprehension. But no, we're excited to get into some companies. You can learn so much from them. Who Do you want to go first? I feel like it it should be you this time. You know, I'm changing it around. Wow, you are. You're throwing a curveball to me. I like it. Okay, well, I am happy to go first. So the first company I want to talk about is one that I just came across, relatively young company called Foyer, F-O-Y-E-R. And what... Foyer does is essentially provide a 401k for home ownership. And so the general idea is that in the same way that we have these dedicated accounts and products that are for long-term savings for specific goals like retirement, obviously we have other ones for education and for healthcare expenses. Some of these accounts are tax advantaged in the US, some are not. But The principle is that there's sort of a design wrapped around these savings or investment products that are designed to try to drive people to a specific goal. And in this particular case, what Foyer is building is sort of the equivalent, a high-yield savings account with some contribution matching and 2% contribution matching for saving for a down payment to buy a home. I have written a lot about this in my newsletter over the last year in particular, I wrote a piece, speaking of paternity leave, when I was out on paternity leave that was titled House or Birkin. And it was written in response to an article that I saw that drove me a little crazy that was about sort of an emerging trend among Gen Z consumers choosing to eschew home ownership, which they view as an inaccessible financial goal that's no longer available to their generation, in favor of saving up for luxury goods like Birkin bags. This disturbed me on a number of levels, but what was really interesting when I was sort of crunching the numbers and looking at it was I was reading the article and I was trying to sort of parse out like, why are they doing this? What makes this like a better goal? And why are they feeling this way? And it was really interesting because the people who were interviewed for this article were talking in very similar terms to how I used to talk about home ownership in terms of like trying to be disciplined. I'm trying to tuck some money away. It's hard, but I'm really excited about this goal. And they're building towards a pot of money that's pretty substantial, right? These luxury fashion items are not inexpensive. Birkin bags are, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. Um, and what struck me as interesting is that math is not that far off 
from the math you need to get to for home ownership. Now, of uh-huh. course, I completely understand like homes have gotten much more expensive. You know, cost of living for buying a home has outpaced inflation and wage growth. You know, there's definitely been disruptions more recently in terms of interest rates going up and mortgages being unaffordable for a lot of the homes that people want to buy. So I, I completely sympathize with the challenges around home ownership. But the thing I was struck by in reading that article and writing my response to it was, it seems almost more like young consumers have a confidence problem around home ownership. They view oh. it, whether they're right or wrong, as an inaccessible thing that's just not available to them. There's this like pessimism and hopelessness yeah. that I'm starting to see signs of. And what I've been thinking about is within the world of like prop tech and real estate and the mortgage market, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Simon, but like the last 30 years, it seems like we've exclusively focused on innovation that's for people who are ready to buy in the moment, right? So like, how do you find a house? That kind of stuff. Yeah, and it, it's been pricing innovation and how quickly can I get yeah. you to convert your better.com. It's yeah. like, we'll front it all for you. You're going to buy, but like, right. here's, we're just going to make that a little bit easier. Convert, convert, convert. But if you right. don't want to do it in the first place, if you don't think it's even possible, how do I hook you? How yes. do I get you in? That yes. makes a ton of sense. I saw a stat in the UK press just this morning, actually, that eight out of 10 under 40s that live in major urban areas in the UK do not believe they will ever own a house. The under 40s, eight out of 10 of them that are currently renting. That's a huge number. So you've got to think about the pessimism of a generation. I mean, the UK is turning Japanese. We are losing a generation of people. The amount of people right. who can actually afford a home is really, really rare because we only really have one mega city and it's kind of like New York. Are you going to own a house mm-hmm. in New York, like in the suburbs? Like, right. That's hard to right. do, but the US is big right. enough that you can move to different areas. So that was mm-hmm. kind of the hope thing completely makes sense to me and a financial product completely makes sense to me. The, in the UK, we have something called the help to buy ISA. Now, an ISA is an interest-free savings account, so it's tax advantaged. And it is also a contribution matched, I think, up to a certain amount by the UK government if it is if you are a first-time buyer. So the government is actually trying to prop up the housing market mm-hmm. with an interest-free savings account plus direct contribution from the IRS equivalent from HMRC. Yeah. And you could see that playing out in the US as well, which is if I have a good job in a good city and I make it to six figures, mm-hmm. how am I going to afford a $2.5 million home? Like It's just so far beyond reach in my mind. And the question becomes, should I? There's actually a sort of school of thought now that says, well, a house is an asset, but it's also a liability. I've seen this line of thinking, yeah. You mm-hmm. know, like as somebody who just had their roof rebuilt and had all kinds of issues right. with it, you know, right. and then the boiler broke in the middle of winter when I just had a new baby, that's a liability. That takes up a lot of my headspace. <laughs> it takes up a lot of my yep. cash. And that's not yep. a thing you have to worry about if you're renting, that you have this sort of consistent monthly outgoing and you can keep that mm-hmm. cost low. So I think there's a generation of people that are looking at assets like luxury goods as being a more stable yep. investment than housing, which is possibly not wrong if you consider where the future of asset prices might go. Can houses really continue to extend so far beyond earnings? Is that realistically for the next 20 years going to happen? Or are they going to actually stagnate a little bit? Would I be better off is it- actually compounding all of my savings that was going into a house deposit into something else? Now, look, the reality is it's not binary. There's going to yeah. be some major shifts. But, you know, like people like to write off these young whippersnappers as being silly. And that was a great headline <laughs> buy luxury bags, not houses. But save, rent, that's just a consequence of where we are. So can you yep. convince somebody with a financial product? How are they doing that for you? How are they making this make sense? How are they solving the problem you talk about? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good question. You know, part of it, I think, is, and it's interesting to hear about how things work in the UK. In the US, we don't really have any good, like, on-ramps for home ownership, right? And so it's like, you know, we've done a lot of work to create a liquid mortgage market. We obviously have Fannie and Freddie. We, I mean, it's the most liquid housing market in the world, right? It's this, like, massive, massive machine that's been built and subsidized by the US government. And yet, it is fascinating to me that we don't have what you described in the UK. We don't have a US equivalent to that. Uh. And so... 
it does remind me a lot of, and this is why I think the 401k analogy, even though it's not a tax advantaged account in quite the same way, this is why the 401k concept makes sense to me, which is with a 401k, like when I was 18, 16, you know, and I was working and I had my first job, I didn't think about retirement. I didn't understand what retirement was. I didn't know how much money I needed to save. I didn't understand the value of compounding returns from investing in a diversified portfolio of stocks over 40 years. Like <laughs> none of that was interesting or like, you know, accessible knowledge to me, probably more for me than others because my parents were pretty focused on financial education when we were teenagers, but like it was a new idea, right? And so it was pretty cool when I started my first job that like a 401k was just built into the experience. Like you sign up, you set up your direct deposit, you pick out all your allocations. And I remember when I was 16, they were like, yeah, we have a 3%. Luckily for the first job, I had, we had a 3% match on 401k. I was like, well, that's interesting. I guess that's kind of cool. And this tells you like how awesome it is to be working while you're living at home and having no expenses. <laughs> but I remember when I first set it up, I was like, why don't I send 15% of my paycheck to my 401k, which was like, like lunacy. And I remember my coworkers being like, you're doing what? But like, at the time, I had no expenses, and I wasn't making a lot of money. So I'm like, yeah, why not 15%. But it kind of became this fun game that I got to play at a relatively young age, figuring out like, if I do this, I can still live on the other money that I'm getting, or I don't I don't need this money. And it was a nice gentle on ramp into the idea of like saving for retirement and like, getting some early emotional satisfaction around that goal. We don't have that with homeownership in the US. And so I do like the idea of a product like this existing. And maybe it's distributed at some point in the future through employers in the same way that 401ks are. You know, I could see it potentially just being something where you sort of take advantage of the arbitrage between what it costs to go acquire a savings account customer versus what like real estate companies will pay for qualified buyers when they're ready to buy and just sort of doing that sort of CAC arbitrage. But I do think there are ways to introduce this product just because there is nothing really in the market that does this today. And so it's kind of a green field in that way. Mm, huge opportunity. Prop tech has sort of been there and we've talked about it a few times and it's always been interesting. I'm yet to see like that next generation. I think maybe people have been a bit down on it after better.com. It feels like yeah. a generation of people need this. If they can attract enough customers, can they build the momentum? Building like a savings product is hard as well to generate and, and kind of really make the money on that. So is it? will they do it? Will they be the next acorns for a different generation of people for a different product? I hope so. I do too. I do too. Um, okay, next company, your first company, Simon Taylor. Okay, so this is Claim. Claim is the social shopping and rewards app that helps users discover new brands, get recommendations from friends, and it offers cash back or, I don't know, I like this piece, the ability to trade those rewards. So it's like aimed at Gen Z oh, consume. Yeah, yeah, right? Making yeah, it social. Yeah, yeah. So I got this reward for shopping at retailer. You've got this reward for shopping at that. Like, I don't really want the freebie thingy, but I know you wanted it, so I'll trade that with you like this excuse for engagement thing that's really, really nice. Aimed at Gen Z consumers, it claims <laughs> to have delivered a 4.8x return on ad spend. That's a really interesting point. <laughs> so claim has nearly 50% of students active on campuses where it's already available and advertisers don't need to make any new integrations. So I'm an advertiser. I want to get at the student population I might spend money with Claim. So I'm an advertiser. This is ad tech LARPing as fintech, really. It's kind of what it does. And so then I get access to this niche of Gen Z students. And I've got this like social experience around the brands that they really care about. That's kind of interesting. So my thought when I saw this is like the battle for Gen Z dollars has really started. Like TikTok, Temu, that's where all the social commerce growth is. That's where all the attention is. Sheehan as well. Like those are the places that are absolutely exploding in growth in a way that, you know, just eBay is not in, in a completely different generation of people. And this to me reminds me of what BNPL was to the millennials. Mm. This could be to Gen Z. You know, it's like different way of thinking about how we get value out of things is really, really important. Gen Z who uses those products of 
discovery and loyalty apps, I think it could really, really work, especially for niche brands. Like if I'm a relatively small brand, what's my choice today? Go into the TikTok zoo and try and stand out or go direct to students who are interested in this stuff. And this platform has, you know, real direct access to them. So, you know, I wonder, I have questions about it. How are they going to make the economics work if it's ad tech? You know, like we know what the multiples are on ad tech. It's been around for a while. They're an app. Are they going to make the distribution work? Like how does the conversion to payments work? There's a lot of things I didn't know, but at the front end, the level of engagement that they seem to have with college campuses seems really, really high. So there's something here to learn from without question. Yeah, absolutely. I remember seeing this one. Someone on Twitter was sharing, I think one of their investors was kind of talking about him. And it does look very interesting to me. I mean, the BNPL comparison seems like a really good one because this definitely reminds me of Klarna, just in the sense that like, you know, the hook is shopping is fun, right? And with Klarna, it was, will finance that shopping and make that sort of seamless and easy and you know, help you spread out the, you know, payments for a $400, you know, a purchase at Adidas or whatever it was. This is, you know, obviously not financing or payments. This is rewards, but it sort of taps into that same, like shopping is fun. And then on the back of it, and much like Klarna is doing, like Klarna is much more of an advertising business today than it is like a lender, right? I mean, like that, that was the hook to draw people in, but like, helping brands connect with consumers and helping to drive commerce that's where the like bigger more sustainable opportunity is that's not as sort of subject to like macroeconomic factors and other things and i i would imagine that the pitch here is the same i guess to your point the difference is in the case of klarna what drew them in what drew their like usage, right? Because you have to build your network, right? If you're going to do any type of like advertising or helping to drive commerce for brands, you have to have a large network of engaged shoppers, you know, participating in the process. And, you know, in Klarna's case, it was, and I think some Alex Rempel, maybe at Andreessen Horowitz wrote about this a while ago, but like Klarna had the benefit of negative CAC, right? Like because they were providing financing at the point of sale, brands were paying them to get their customers, right? And so they had this really like highly efficient engine for acquiring customers, and then they built out their advertising business. To your point about like this as a business model, I would be curious to double click into how the college campus customer acquisition sort of process works and how efficient they feel they can get at it. And maybe it's a function of the virality of being able to trade rewards and make rewards tradable and make it more social. Maybe that's the hook in the same way that, you know, Cash App grew through sort of those viral hooks for P2P. So maybe that's the play. I'm not sure. But to me, that's the big thing. Every successful app has that story, don't they? At the the beginning of life, they had this highly engaged community. And that's what makes me feel like there's some mojo here in that, like, it's this small audience that they hyper serve really really well they've they've hit upon something but you know they're selling cpms here like this is ad tech is a different business to fintech but if you go right back to as you say alex rampel and trial pay people have been trying to fix this thing for a while of like where does ad tech meet a payment where does ad tech meet converting to actually buying a thing and bnpl comes from one way which is like we're financing but we're an ad tech business and this is we're sort of making a loyalty thing and it's a shopping experience, but it really is about advertising. It doesn't feel like finance on the front of it. I think it was actually you that said it on Twitter. Wouldn't it be just nice if the next new hype wasn't buy more stuff? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. That actually, that was my comment on this when I saw it on Twitter was it, this is really cool and it's uh, they're backed by Sequoia and some other really great investors. It is disturbing slightly to me that if it's shopping these types of ideas get like funding and get a lot of like kind of prestige if it's not shopping they don't and it's hard right because like and i've I've written about this in my newsletter and i think probably have too like spending money is just fun right and so there's just this natural engagement that you get with enabling shopping that you don't get with other things we see that with credit cards we see that with buy now pay later we see that with these different kind of rewards programs But I also do have always wondered for a long time, you know, 
a lot of science goes into like, how can we optimize the user experience? How can we make this seem fun and cool and engaging and social? And it would be nice if more of that thinking got applied kind of broadly beyond just buying stuff. I will say the other thing in this that I find kind of interesting, and I mentioned Cash App before, like well, a game I like to play sometimes with these things that kind of goes to the, is this a business or is this a product feature thing? A game I like to play is like, if these guys were moderately successful, who might acquire them and why? Uh-huh. And Klarna is one that seems sort of obvious. But the other one I think is kind of interesting is Cash App, because this seems like very much of an extension off of the way that Cash App has been trying to sort of blend P2P, which not only, by the way, allows you to send other people you know, dollars, but you can also send crypto. You can also send stock in other companies to someone. I can send you, Simon, via Cash App, $25 of Apple stock. So it's viral feedback loops. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And they're trying to sort of expand the idea of what that type of P2P engagement looks like. This ability to like trade with your friends different rewards for different merchants sort of fits into that same thing. And it also ties into the sort of tie between Cash App and Square, where they have those like boosts where they allow merchants in the Square ecosystem to have boosts within the Cash App ecosystem. So there there are these sort of emerging ties between, you know, commerce and shopping, rewards, P2P payments. And so this definitely seems like a cog in that larger machine. And there's this generation of boutique brands that can build an entire drop shipping business on the back of some advertising through TikTok and Instagram, right? So you you yes. can build a scale business now with a team of five that just, so long as you've got the intellectual property and you've got the marketing machine that can make somebody want that thing. And I put a lot of that, but even like coffee boutiques and like little fitness stores, like the revolution of Square, the merchant side, and all, all of its competitors, is it's much lower cost and lower effort to build a new brand, new business, and be a boutique these days. And you can be a boutique at scale. So you merge these two trends, uh, trends, a boutique at scale and a new generation buying from a new set of brands. And some way of connecting those two makes some sense. Disconnecting that from the payment experience is kind of interesting yeah, your Square is the natural home of this stuff. And maybe this is how claim goes the other way is they start to become, they use this as a wedge into owning more of the merchants um, sort of front and middle and back office. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's, I'll be very curious to see how that next generation of sort of commerce adjacent fintech, I guess would be the way to put it, like how that develops and who ends up owning that right because yeah. um i you know i mean you and i are old and so like i think sometimes i'm probably more this way than you are but like in my head i'm like oh you know cash app and square very cool very like new very you know like hip uh fintech but the reality is like it's now as you said kind of with the npl for millennials like it's a generation behind right and so i'll be very curious to see how some of these new wedges that are being built in some of these areas, do they get absorbed into that older generation of businesses that have reached kind of that scale and have built that ecosystem? Or are they able to use this wedge to expand into their own ecosystem? And, you know, obviously, that's subject to macro factors and other things that aren't always in your control as a founder. But I mean, yeah, just looking at their website and kind of browsing around some of the customers they work with and some of the metrics that they're claiming, like, it seems like they're getting traction. So it's a good start. It's a certainly a good start. Who's next up? All right. So my next one is a company called Crew. And this is another one, seed stage company or pre-seed actually. And they do banking for families. So this fits into the banking, bank accounts for kids, for families. So in the version of a, a green light or a till or a copper, there's quite a few players in this space. So not a greenfield market by any means. Their focus seems to be on providing a sort of integrated checking and savings product for, as I said, for families. And so they want this to be something that's not just for kids, but is for the whole family. So mom and dad have an account with a checking account, savings account, and then there's integrated sort of sub accounts for each kid, which again breaks down into saving, spending, there's allowance oh, functionality wow. built into it. And so 
it's very much focused on sort of democratizing is a bad word for this, but like sort of giving access to both checking and savings at a family or household level. And I think one of the sort of claims of differentiation that they make is paying a pretty generous interest rate on the savings account for all of the different accounts and sub-accounts. And so they want to pass along all of the interest rates in the current environment. And I guess use that as sort of an acquisition hook, which is a little different than some of the other players in this space. Do you know who the partner banks are underneath? Did you hashtag scroll to the bottom on this one? No, I actually didn't. I should have done that. So the, the reason I asked that question was, I'm assuming fintech, not a bank, right? So there'll be a sponsor bank underneath. It is underneath. a fintech. Oh, you know who it is? It's uh, Banger Savings in Maine. That's who it is. Banger Savings, right. Hypothesis, um, mm-hmm. just for you, fintech companies can compete on yield in a way that most banks probably couldn't because they're not worried yep. about their net interest margin in quite the same way. So there is always a small bank somewhere that can offer great high yield, something up to a certain amount. And uh, with a family and a child account, it's not like offering high yield to a business or or something else like that. And so what you're getting in the fintech world is like this arbitrage of the best offers from the best banks that you then start to put together as a little patchwork that the fintech companies are able to do. And they were able to do it through banking as a service providers to some extent. But what we're now seeing is this innovation and repackaging of how that can be a hook to different verticals. And I like the idea of that being a hook to a family, because what am I thinking about when I'm thinking about my kids? I'm thinking about savings. They're thinking about spending. They're thinking about other things entirely. But that's like the buyer here is and is ultimately the parent. So sorry for interrupting, but like that was kind of what made me it triggered that insight. No, I totally agree with that. And I think it is a really good insight, right? Because the to your point about this sort of arbitrage opportunity that's available to fintechs in picking the right partner bank and being able to take advantage of kind of the rate environment and what that partner bank is trying to achieve from a balance sheet perspective, yeah, you can pass along these savings. And, you know, obviously we've seen that happen in other areas, right? We've seen a lot of competition post SVB in the world of like B2B and commercial banking and trying to compete on, you know, interest rates and treasury and all of those things. So we've seen it in certain areas of fintech. But yeah, I had never seen it before in the family banking space. And so I did think that was an interesting hook. They're very, very early, so I wasn't able to get a good sense of like how some of the embedded allowance functions or other things work in it. But you know, I'm going to cheat here, Simon, real fast, and I, I want to ask you a question. I was going to try to save this for manifesting our fintech idea at the end, but I, I want to bring it into this conversation because I think it's relevant. When I was looking at Crew, one of the things that sort of occurred to me and I wanted to get your take on is... This is a more popular space than it was, you know, three, four years ago. There are quite a few companies here. There's also larger providers like, you know, Cash App that has sort of made their product more accessible to kids and families. Apple has done something similar. So like this is sort of a a larger trend. Chase has a partnership with Greenlight where they're offering a, a product for kids and families. But I don't know that I've necessarily seen as a parent the ideal like family or kids banking or fintech app that I would want. And I was curious to get your take on like, if you were manifesting something, what would you want? What would be like Simon Taylor is designing on a piece of paper, the ideal fintech app that he can use to start engaging his kids as they get older in finance and thinking about money? What would you want? Yeah, I don't know because they're not old enough and I've not tried. So I'm speaking without experience. I'm also speaking from sort of have relatives whose kids do have these cards and they're typically 10, 11, 12. So I'm sort of a decade away from having experienced it. And maybe I will get there when the kids get older and I would use one of these products. But as I immediately think about it, I I have the same issue with it that I have with neobanks, which is my fintech world is so unbelievably fragmented that it makes tax season impossible it makes just knowing where I stand in pulling a PL together impossible. It makes knowing if I got the best deal impossible. There is, I, I have an information asymmetry and an admin problem fundamentally. And 
the reason I like the B2B fintech space is they've leveraged the sponsor bank ecosystem and the banking as a service ecosystem to partially solve some of that information asymmetry for growth businesses and finance operations teams in a way that I think a lot of the neobanks haven't. The neobanks had done well at solving for their wedge. And to your point about Cash App and Apple, maybe they get there. Maybe they're the ones to watch, but they're three or four years away from having the feature functionality. You really need to be able to do it. All of the pieces are there. You could put this together. Could But the problem with re-aggregating stuff is you have a sort of a, well, how do you start a business that re-aggregates things question? Unless it's virgin territory, like, oh, open banking doesn't exist. Here's Yodley and Plaid. Oh, you know, like, there's no way to get access to all of the payroll providers. Here's Atomic and Pinwheel. Like, th- these things come along at a point in time. So what's the trigger to re-aggregate all of the banking-as-a-service stuff for consumers? That, I think, is an opportunity there to be taken. But most of the people doing it are consumer neobanks. And the consumer neobanks are either mid-stage and they're thinking, oh my God, how do I just diversify my products away from a debit card so that I can get profitable? How can I deal with the fraud issue that's been exploding across the industry? So their mind space is in a different place to which somebody like this might actually be well-placed to do it, to really go nail it for parents. So the solve my admin problem, solve my information asymmetry problem, And then I would meaningfully move forward and let me actually instruct payments and move them back forward. I know how I would build it, but I don't know what the MVP of that would be. I would need to start building that for parents and testing it with them to just really, really figure that out. I suspect because I'm close to tax season in the UK and I'm starting (laughs) to think about all of the admin headache I have to do. Oh yeah, I mean, I'm sure you have it as well as a creator, Mm -hmm. right? But like the just the freaking admin of Running a family PL is is frankly outrageous. Help me aggregate that stuff. Nobody's done it well. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good call out. The other one I was thinking about, and it it ties into what you were just describing, is I kind of feel like what I want from a family banking app. Cause to your point, like I don't necessarily know, and this is maybe one of the concerns I would have with like crew or really a lot of providers that are trying to do this, is it's a pretty hard pitch to get a family to move their entire yeah. sort of P&L over to your account. And particularly, I mean, and you know, I know they're early stage, they're, you know, going to get bigger and kind of get more mature, but like, you know, trusting a small fintech company that I've never heard of before with that level of sort of household responsibility is a tough ask. I think in a lot of cases, unless you have some of those killer features that you're describing, I sort of wonder if another way to attack this problem is to say, look, every family has a different philosophy about money, right? And different lessons they want to teach their kids about money. And in some cases, the parents might have separate accounts that they keep separate and they share certain expenses. In other cases, it might be one combined account. Some families might really emphasize the importance of savings. Some might really emphasize the importance of investing. You know, some might want to be able to really control sort of the allowance and sort of payment to, you know, the kids sort of functionality. I kind of wonder if like we almost need a banking as a service layer that's built to allow families to build their own family banking products, right? In the sense of like, allow me to put my own imprint of what I want to teach my kids and how I want to sort of like impart our financial philosophy to them. Like, give me more of a WYSIWYG type interface where I can kind of have more control to define that because I do think that one of the things we don't talk about enough when it comes to like financial product design is product design is either opinionated or generic, right? Yeah. And if it's generic, it works for everybody, but it doesn't work perfectly for anybody. And you see that a lot with banks. That's most of like bank product design is just hopelessly generic. In fintech, and particularly with neobanks, you tend to see a lot more opinionated design where they say, this is the philosophy, this is what you want to do. And that's great, but it only works for a segment of the market that really sort of identifies with that philosophy. I do wonder if there's a way to build kind of a middle layer where it's like, we don't want to dictate to you exactly what the philosophy or opinion should be for how this should work. But we also want you to end up with a product or service that is opinionated and that does work in a pretty detailed way for you. Like, I wonder if there is a way to 
build that sort of middle of the road interface to allow people to customize this a bit more. I don't know. There's a company called Composer. One of the things they do oh, is, sure. is help you compose like investment strategies, right? Yeah, yeah. It's kind of a drag and drop and you, well, I care about this. I care about that. I want to see this sort of target. And, and it's actually doing quite well in, in the niche that it's playing. And that, But it's very investment focused. Composer, but for all financial products, but with open banking, right? Like, yes, that's kind of what you're describing. Again, eminently yes. buildable, but confusing to like, who's the first best customer for that? Like, that's kind of the thing. Because the problem when you give consumers a sandbox is they go, what do I do inside it? Right. The flip side of that is Minecraft. Like, this is a sandbox, and the whole point is for it to be a sandbox. And I think there are people who would love to play inside that sandbox. And if you design it well enough, you give them, you lay the breadcrumbs in front of them to do the first few tasks so that they kind of figure out what the rules of the sandbox are, and then they get increasingly more sophisticated, and then you build adventures and game journeys off the back of that. Yep. That would make a ton of sense. I think this is buildable. I would be inspired by what Composer's done for investments. Funny, the first ever pitch for Monzo that I saw way back in the day was going to be a marketplace for a billion people for financial products. They were going to have a card in the middle of it, and then they were going to use open banking as their marketplace when we didn't know what open banking was, when we didn't know it was just going to be like data and money movement. We thought it could be actually signing up for the products like banking as a service. Again, this would be buildable, but it's challenging. It would be a really good one to throw into like a venture studio. Just like the market for this, if you get it right, is phenomenal. But getting it right is just going to require such blitz scaling of different ideas to see where the traction is. The, to punch through with this is going to be hard. But all of the pieces of the puzzle are there. This is super easy to build and there's demand for it. It's just what does it look and feel like? That's the hard part. It's intriguing. I'm intrigued by just like directionally going there. And to your point, there are some examples both in fintech and financial services and outside where you could see it. So anyway, I, I think there's something there. Let's get to your last company. Okay. The last one um, is Brico AI. This is like the regulatory license and charter management AI. Mm. So you're a fintech company. You're going to have to acquire a bunch of MTLs maybe a ton of other licenses if you're in lending with all 50 states, like mortgage licenses, you name it. And not only are you going to have to get the license, you're going to have to renew it. You're going to have to report against how you're performing with 50 different states, with 50 different systems. And how are the compliance teams doing that today? They are using spreadsheets and they're using different internal committees and processes and your head of compliance just punched the air when they heard that this thing exists. This is like the dashboard for like, oh my God, this is something to finally help me. So it's sort of like how Themis and Cable helps compliance officers deal with partner banks and programs. This is that for the fintech company with their MTLs, with lending licenses, with everything else. So really simple product. But actually, I could see anybody who's in fintech or as every company becomes a fintech company, everybody's got to deal with the compliance headache of managing MTLs. Why wouldn't there be a tool for that? This just seems really, really smart. It's a nice, simple one. Yeah, no, this is super interesting. I mean, I love the sort of OS for everything kind of era that we're going into. Uh, and, and like, you know, I mean, sometimes these analogies are a bit like overplayed, but I actually think OS is a good one because it does describe like, as you were talking about like Themis and Cable and some of the other versions of this that have popped up in different areas. It's like, it goes back to what you were saying before, there's this like massive admin problem that so many different people in financial services have where it's like, none of this is complex. It's not like rocket science, but it's just annoying. It's really annoying and I have to throw people at it to manage it because there's just nothing purpose built for it. And, you know, especially if you're like in compliance or something, like I'm not going to build a tool for it, right? Like I don't have engineering resources. I'm just going to use spreadsheets. Like you just sort of muddle your way through. And, you know, it's interesting. I guess a sort of broad question I have about this is what are the functions within financial services, banks or fintechs that are most sort of in need of like purpose-built dashboards and OSs, right? And it mm. seems like, and, and correct me if I'm wrong or I'm missing a big one, but like 
the areas that are critical, but so far away from engineering that if they were to ask like an engineer at their company to build it for them, they just get laughed out of the room. It's it's like chief financial officers and chief compliance officers, right? It's like these areas of sort of administration that just are not really seen as being kind of core to the business. But if you're in financial services, they are, right? I mean, like to use this example, if there's some gets screwed up with your MTL license in a particular state, like that is an existential problem to the whole business. So it's sort of taking advantage of these people have needed engineering resources for a long time. They've been, they are worth investing engineering time into, but for whatever reason, they sort of get passed over. And so instead of operating the rest of the way that the company does with purpose-built systems and software and workflows and automation, they are managing with stuff that we were using 20, 30 years ago, and it's never been updated. So I, I do really like these sort of built-for-purpose OSs that, as you say, are pretty narrowly focused, but are useful. I guess the question, and it's you know a theme for today's conversation is, what's the roll-up for this? Like, is this a standalone business? Is this something that eventually gets rolled up into sort of a larger set of products for you know, chief compliance officer at a, you know, fintech company or a bank? Like, I don't necessarily know the answer to that, but as a product, it makes all the sense in the world to me. Yeah, well, I mean, look, there's the broader theme of every spreadsheet will be a SaaS business and every SaaS business could be replaced by a spreadsheet. That And that's a, kind <laughs> right. of a, a cycle that just endlessly repeats and, and long may it continue. I think the reason this one's powerful is because what we're seeing as new companies are born is the CFO actually does have a lot of help these days in the last five years. There's, oh yeah, you can run a billion dollar finance team with a handful of pay finance ops guys, two, three, mm -hmm. four, five. You know, it's not uncommon to see less than 10 at a billion dollar company because of the, just the amount of automation that is realistically possible with companies that have been born to solve all parts of the finance workflow. That's a lot, lot harder in compliance these days. Compliance is lots of stuff to do the job of compliance, but there's not very much around other bits of it. You know, so I think to your point, it was either build it yourself, in which case I'm competing for engineering resource, but that engineering resource is also focused primarily on generating revenue and keeping money coming in the door, or it was buy a product, but the product was like the spreadsheet we had. And so... I really like this one as being like, it's niche. It's probably a scaled niche because everybody has this problem. Yeah. But yeah, does where does that fit? Sponsor banks have a lot of time and attention and focus on them. But what about the fintech companies? And, and what about all of the people who are looking to get into lending? What about all the platforms that are embedding lending through Stripe Capital all of a sudden? How are they maintaining compliance? Think about the amount of people that have an MTL Twitter's going to get an MTL and is, is going through the process. How are they managing compliance? So if every company is doing payments somewhere and needs a payments license, are they just going to outsource this or are they going to use a tool? I think it's the market's bigger than it sounds like, but does this get acquired by somebody who does this kind of thing? You know, like a Lexus Nexus. Yeah, somebody who just does a bit of everything involved in risk, yeah, maybe. But I always think that's where you know great, great ideas go to die once they get acquired by somebody <laughs> that big. Yeah, it's the Lexus Nexuses and uh, FISs of the world where yeah, great technology goes to die. But to your point, I think the other way to look at this is this is kind of like banking as a service for people who don't want to partner bank, right? Where it's like if you wanted to build a payments business, or you wanted to build a lending business, or if you're an existing brand and you want to add payments or you want to add lending, there's sort of two doors in front of you, right? Door number one is work with a partner bank that has all of these licenses and has the ability to do this, but you're working with a partner bank. You're taking on the risk of working with that bank and everything that that means in the world of Bass these days. The bank is annoying to deal with and places all these restrictions on you and has all these sort of cultural clashes with the way that you want to work and collaborate. Or, of course, you work with a banking as a service partner and a platform that abstracts some of those things away. But still, those things are sort of sitting under the surface. Or door B, and we've seen lots of companies do this, you go get your own MTLs or you go get your own lending licenses on a state-by-state -state basis. And in that environment, you are 
completely in control of your own destiny, right? We've seen that we saw Apple do this with its buy now, pay later, right? It set up its own lending business and went out and got lending licenses in all of the states directly rather than working with a bank partner. But for companies that don't have the appetite to do that, the problem with door B is it's really complex and annoying and unfun and you have to do it across all 50 states. So there's sort of this like really painful choice to either work with a partner bank and sort of suffer all the problems with that or go get all of your own licenses and do that. This sort of seems a little bit like the platform for the banking as a service alternative where you're not working with a bank. So it's like a lighter version of that in a way. And and if you think about what's happening in the market, A, there's a bunch of regulatory action coming towards the sponsor banking world. There's kind of a sponsor banks are reacting by going more direct. You know, they're they're starting to go to the programs and to the fintech companies more and sell to them rather than selling through platforms and third parties as, as the only route to market a third and acquiring raise money like this has been happening for sort of six months ago so the sales pitch is coming up but in terms of coming down okay i'm gonna go this extra mile i'm gonna take on this additional regulatory burden of kind of going with the the partner if there is this tool that comes out of the box like if i was a partner bank i would be looking for things like cable themis sardine alloy yeah you know all of those guys and this that i could resell to say to a program that, hey, you're going to have to a lot more work, but here, we've made it easy for you. You can use this tool and you can use this tool from us. And if they that changes their go-to-market from selling something quite ugly where so the fintech company has to build all the way down into them to selling something, but fire a network of partnerships, it feels a lot easier for that fintech company. Yeah, well, it, it, it builds in a little bit more granularity, right? Where it's like, Because if I'm whatever company, whether it's a non-finance brand or like a new fintech company, and I'm sort of getting into this world, like I want you to give me as many options as possible. Like have a network of different partner banks I can work with, have a tool that enables me to go get my own MTLs and state lending licenses and make that really like easy and streamlined. Like give me the maximum number of different options and then let me sort of pick the path I want to go down. Let me choose my own adventure. And I feel like Banking as a service and compliance generally is not choose your own adventure today. It's very much (laughs) like, this is our model. You have to follow it exactly. And if you don't want to work with us, fine, go work with somebody else. There's not really a like choose your own adventure, how to manage these sort of compliance parts of of launching a financial services product. So I I think it fits very nicely into that as kind of a broadening theme. Be more Baldur's Gate. That is the lesson of the year. Simon has his some of his PS5 uh, stuff in the background as well. Um, all right, Simon, we're almost out of time, but I want to give you just a second to manifest something. I already manifested mine, so we did that, but manifest an idea for us. Yeah, why can't stuff read my email more in a really secure way? Um, so Ooh. you've got lots of purchasing cards that will... Like Ramp is famous for this. Like if you get a receipt and it is sent to your personal email address, they have that really cool thing where you can just forward it directly to Ramp. You don't have to like forward it to your work email to forward it to Ramp. All right, cool. That's 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 intelligent. I like that. But Mm -hmm. that just for all of the crap that comes into all of my emails. So there's a bunch of financial things that and finance adjacent things around the house, around getting work done on the house, around the car, around insurance. So this is almost like building up to the family PL, as it were. It's like what the low-hanging fruit, which is Gmail actually automatically does a pretty good job when you get a flight, when you get other things. It will try and automatically just prompt that into your calendar. Would you like to add this to your calendar? I do think it would come from the tech firms or the email providers or something like that. But I think this is an opportunity for an API Email is underloved. Help me get the most out of my emails because I spend so much of my time on the search function, figuring Uh out how that goes into a spreadsheet to go to my account to figure out what's next. Mm -hmm. But it's all sitting right there. So like, what's the platform I connect to all of that that starts to, to put all of the pieces together? Like with large language models, it's entirely possible to do more semantic search and start putting these pieces together. Yeah. Right? Like this, this is doable. And can you tell I'm in pain with admin right now? Does oh, it, man. Show I, us 
It definitely shows itself. And I feel you, man. I mean, I it's funny. I, I wrote a piece a while ago where I was talking about like different visions of what a bank account could look like. And one of the ones I asked for was like, could I have an email based bank account? Right. Where it's like my 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 email inbox, which is actually a combined email inbox across however many different email accounts I have. That is like the whole that is the dashboard of my life. Right. To your point, like almost everything flows through there, like bills flow through there, things about the house, tax stuff, scheduling stuff, flights, like everything flows through there. And it's probably one of the great failures of Google, I think in particular, that with the lead they had with Gmail, they never built like an email-based intelligence dashboard for your life, apart from a few things like flights and other things. But like, I want that experience that they do where they pull out details for flights. I want that for Everything. Yeah, everything and to your point there's a huge huge amount of finance like i need reminders on bills that come in through email where like why like as an example why is it where i get a notification for a bill in my email i have connected my bank account and there's open banking why can't i have some service that links the two together where it goes hey you have this bill that we know about because you got it via email we also know that you haven't paid this biller through any of the your checking accounts or credit cards, which means that based on the timing, you're probably overdue and paying this bill and you might have forgotten about it. Like, why can't someone solve that for me? And I want two-factor authentication on that. I want tokenization. I want this based yeah. in the device. Like, yes, it's, it's interesting that Apple's building a large language model, right? So they, they, and Google's doing a lot around the tensor chips to start to build the large language model into Android. So it sits inside the physical device more and more. Data privacy is going to really matter with this stuff because once I oh, once totally. I open Pandora's box to my emails, like boom, you you kind of got everything. That's right. So we we manage that carefully. We have Yubi keys. We have all of the two factor authentication in that. That aside, it's all sitting there. Yeah. I actually spent one of my the other project besides creating um like a, a set of slides over paternity was figure playing with Chat GPT to try and write some Python code to just try mm. and Zapier to try and start making some of this work. I was building my own little agent in Chat GPT. Oh sure, work some of the time was a bit clunky. They kind of got a little version going, and it but. It, the problem is it's like just the amount of use cases that you have to blast through. I need to like take a right. month off and do just that to go build this thing. And even <laughs> then, you know, like I'm a tinker, a hobbyist, it wouldn't be done properly. But it really frustrates me when it's entirely possible. It's sitting right there. All of the data is there. I know how to build this thing. I'm sitting there trying to build this thing because I'm so annoyed by it. Yeah. And yet that is just there for the taking. So yeah, that's it. absolutely is. Okay, well, I love that. That's a great one to end on. As Simon just referenced briefly, if there's anyone listening who hasn't read his 2023 slide deck on the state of fintech and where everything is at, make sure you carve out some time to do that. It's amazing. And Simon, you are amazing. Thank you so much for uh, joining. We're so happy to have you back full time in the fintech ecosystem and uh, can't wait to do this again. Cannot wait to do it again. But another shout out to Jared. Did an amazing job. Let's do this again soon. Yes. Awesome. Sounds great. Thank you, sir. Stay classy. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of FinTech Takes. Stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest FinTech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. And if you love FinTech Takes, please tell a friend. <laughs>